welcome to The Light Pod, brought to you by LightEye, a hub for ideas, education, and a little bit of entertainment when it comes to architectural lighting. I'm your host, Sam Corbel, and today we're in Highland, New York, at the North American headquarters of Salux. I'm sitting down with Peter Stanway, the CEO who's been here for eight years, but has a 33-year career that started out as a product designer and has brought him to where he's at today. Peter, thanks for having me in your facility. It's great to be here. Welcome to the podcast. How are things going? Oh, thank you, Sam. Absolute honor to do this podcast with you. Appreciate you being with us for the last couple of days. And hopefully we've shot some good material and tell a few people about Salux. You guys have got a cool story. You enlightened me a little bit on the romantic side of it, which I don't think people necessarily know. Give me that 30-second story of what happened in Berlin. That's a good place to start. The history is always a good place. Salux as a business has been around literally since the end of the Second World War. This was really a dark time. Our business was founded by a gentleman, Mr. Hermann Bansbach, in Berlin in 1948. But prior to that, just in those few years after the war, electricity was rationed. You can't imagine it in a world today, but electricity was rationed in the city of Berlin. Of course, the city lay in ruins. The Allied forces managed to put enough generation of power into Berlin, but you'd only get two hours of power a day. Hermann came up with the idea that if he could just store that energy, put it into a battery, and then connect a light to that battery, he would have light in pretty dark times within Berlin. You know, I think Hermann and Elon Musk would have been good friends. Yeah, if he only had a lithium-ion battery in the day. But imagine one person in your neighborhood who had light and nobody else did. Soon he realized that if he could make more of these battery storage devices, then he had a business. And that was really how the business was set up from a, a survival situation of creating light within Berlin. He brought a business to it. And actually the Salux name is shortened from Sempelux. Sempelux was the original Latin for forever light. And that was really the reflection on Hermann and his creating light in the dark times and early days within Berlin. Well, that's pretty incredible. I mean, how many lighting manufacturers have a name with the story and, and a mentality and brand behind that? Definitely something I didn't know and I learned this week. But I've got to ask, who's Peter? What's your passion and how did you get your start in lighting? First of all, I, I wasn't around in those dark days within Berlin. That was really Herman's story. I've been in the lighting industry 33 years. I think when all of us talk about long careers like that, we take a little moment to reflect on it. I started as a product designer. I went to school to learn industrial design. And I think any designer, when you come out of college, you figure out you just want to design stuff. The first job I had was not very romantic. It was, it was designing bathrooms. But I did design Elton John's bathroom in the Savoy Hotel. Gold glitter toilet and gold glitter bath. That's how it started. But I wasn't made for designing bathrooms. I then got a job in lighting. First job was with a very small business. And I was a product engineer. And I thought, like... A lot of the engineers we meet today that we employ out of college had that same thought, lighting. That's pretty interesting. I can do that for a couple of years and we'll see how it goes. And then of course, the years later, you get into involved with an industry and it's very hard to break out of it. Why do you think it's so hard to break out of this industry? The truth is nobody else would have us. I think that there is some truth in that. It's a great industry to be in. So therefore, Absolutely. it has those dynamics that keep people inspired whether you want to go into sales and marketing, whether you want to go into design, whether you want to go into customer service or production and manufacturing, there's such a blend of science and art. I mean, 
I always say that within our products, it has to be the balance between science and art. If it's not architectural, architectural lighting, you have to have that architectural content. But to me, that's not enough. You've got to have the technical side as well. So we've got to be able to produce an efficient source and the science with the art. So I think as individuals come into lighting, there's always somewhere to go. And 30 years later, there's always, you know, the next challenge, the next opportunity. Absolutely. You started as a product designer. You got your first job in lighting. How did you get to where you're at today? The design developed from working for a lighting company and I grew. I was the development test engineer in the days when we had a lot of fluorescent technology and we spent a lot of time in our industry. We became experts as people at that time and we always went to the next challenge. And that's when I thought, okay, well, just rather than working for the one company, I can work for several companies. So I set up a design consultancy. I think there were general design consultancies at the time, but no one was doing optical design. No one was doing the thermal stuff. This is like in the late 90s. I found myself pretty well attached to several European manufacturers and manufacturers here in the United States. I think some of the European flair had to be transferred to America. So I was a European designer and recruited to, to help that process for certain American businesses. In Europe, I think at the time, we were just pushing the miniaturization of products. We had some pretty large products, but we always wanted to make them more compact, more elegant in their own. So having a product design consultancy allowed me the experience to work with many individuals within our industry, many businesses. And I think that gave me the ability to, rather than just being a designer, became a business leader as we started to recruit other designers and have to fight for work. And the sales side came into it. The marketing came into it. Designing wasn't enough. Next thing you knew, you were doing a little bit of everything. Yeah, that's right. And I think as a leader of business, you do have to be a generalist. You don't have to be the best. And many people say you have to employ the best people, but you don't have to be the best. You just got to know enough about the subject to bring it all together. And I think that that is the skill. So getting that business leadership as a design consultant allowed me to start to lead lighting companies. And I led the Citeco lighting business from year 2000 for 11 years. And that was in the UK, working mainly on European projects. Very much what I do today, working with lighting designers and architects who really want to create some sort of vision. And I think the design background makes me a little bit fearless in that somebody has an idea of what they want to produce. I look at the problem and say, okay, well, yeah, we can do that. We can find a way to do that. And then hopefully produce the product at the end of the day. So what's fascinating is you've had this career and it's been not only in the United States, but international. And you've gotten a breadth of experience with different manufacturers, not necessarily on board with them, but consulting for them through Peter's lens and the optics that you have, no pun intended. Walk us through the timeline of evolution over the last 30 years in this industry. In the last 30 years, we touched on earlier about fluorescent light sources. At the time, we were just working with integration of that light source into product of many different varieties. Whilst the sources became more and more miniature, T12 became T5 lamps, and uh, into compact fluorescence as well. So we were building around there. And, and I think then, I remember late 90s, no, we missed out. The induction lamps were around in the sort of early 90s. What was going on with induction lamps? They it, were massive, yeah, absolutely and, massive. And it was a good idea to put this massive product in a road tunnel or something where you didn't have to try and make it look small. Relatively short-lived, I think, in terms of the technology because along came LED. I remember in the late 90s getting some white LEDs. I think this was probably 1997, 1998. We were, as design consultants, putting them in various products which were for the Ministry of Defense. It was very specialty. Very special, incredibly expensive light source. And when you say incredibly expensive, can you quantify that? 
I think each individual chip was 20 times the price of what we'd pay today. And the power was incredibly low. In terms of efficacy? Yeah, in terms of what came out of it. I think this technology shift was that we actually had the white version. And from that white light, we could start to use it in interior applications. And so that's when we started to see really around late 90s, early 2000s, we started to put LED into commercially viable white lighting sources within buildings. At the time, we weren't sure whether it would really ever make it. And it was much like computer technology. Every time you bought a new computer, it was a lot faster than the previous one. It's interesting you bring up computers because LEDs are an electronic component, similar to maybe a hard drive in a computer. It's a component in a computer. LEDs are now a component in a luminaire. We've got drivers, we've got sensors, Wi-Fi is being programmed in, people are putting RTLS beacons in the luminaires. There's so much that's going into a luminaire. It's very much become this smart system, but it's all in this miniature package that you spoke to earlier, that the trend has been to get smaller and more efficient. What's it been like to evolve into the world of LED as a manufacturer? The big challenge has been that, go back to conventional light sources as a lighting manufacturer, perhaps we weren't bothered what the light source was. We just made a fixture to put that light source in. Whatever the lamp was, we would find a way to frame it and put it in a product. We didn't have to worry about the color temperature or whatever was going in that product. It had a certain length, so no one was going to say, can you make me something half the size? It was just, it's a four-foot lamp. That's how long it's going to be. With LED, that's really where the game changed. We had to adapt to a new source, which was actually a point source, which if you think about it, is not a very comfortable way to start lighting interior environments with lots of individual very bright sources. As designers, we have to find a way to smooth out that light, to capture the light in an efficient way and get it to go where we wanted it to go. There was a big evolution there. So when you take the light and you start to shape it, you capture it, you push it through a lens, you have an optic system. Talk to me a little bit more about the other components that all of a sudden popped up and started to have to be placed within that system. We always had to deal with temperature control. Thermal aspects of a fixture were always critical, but I think they became more critical with the LED sources of today. How do we get the heat out? So we've got to become extraordinary thermal designers to be able to produce an efficient product today. And on top of thermal, I've got to imagine there's a few other things that weren't necessarily in the design bucket as a luminaire designer that have been tossed in. Perhaps we were doing similar things optically with conventional sources, but the miniaturization was the difference. I remember side-lit optical panels today. We did that with fluorescent sources. They were just much bigger. The fixture itself was probably two inches deep as opposed to the quarter of an inch deep. So that allowed us to put light into materials in a more compact form, which ultimately made a more elegant light fixture if you're then suspending it within a space. What do you think the biggest benefit of the evolution of technology has been for manufacturing? Well, there's a lot of benefits for the user in terms of the energy efficiency. That's what really drove the business. If you were a lamp manufacturer, well, boy, you were no longer replacing lamps in buildings on an annual basis. You were watching your business erode. So some of the big players in the market had to completely pivot, adapt into a new business of making light fixtures, acquiring lighting businesses who yep. made light fixtures. So I think and that's that was, Osram, Phillips. Yes. Yeah. In early 2000s, you could see a lot of panic going on within that part of our industry. Okay, how are we going to survive when this LED light source, which we didn't think was going to catch on, seems to be catching on? Because they weren't focused on being LED manufacturers. There were other players like Cree, 
like Nichia that came into the marketplace. They did. I think there was a lot of drive with the, the marriage between computer screens and lighting. I think no mistake there. Maybe the lighting source might not have been purely developed for illumination of spaces. I think we were developing sources for flat screens and computers, and that brought the Samsungs and the other players who were involved with other electronic devices into the lighting division, which created a different set of players overnight. Well, it's interesting that you bring up the fact that lighting might actually be a byproduct of other industries at this point. I tell you what, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll dive into the landscape of manufacturing today, what's out there and what the future looks like. Sound good? Sounds good. Hey, it's Sam. Real quick, the Light Pod is brought to you by LightEye, a hub for ideas, education, and entertainment in the architectural lighting community. They bring you fun, engaging content in the form of this podcast and also short two minute videos. Check them out. That's lytei.com. And welcome back. Over the break, Peter and I were just catching up a little bit more about the evolution of lighting manufacturers and how a lot of manufacturers have had to pivot to stay in this industry. Others have come and gone, and there are some that have just popped up and seem to be sticking around. Peter, talk to me just a little bit more about what it's been like to sit at Salux for the last eight years and watch that landscape of manufacturing evolve. It's certainly been an interesting few years here at Salux in North America. I don't think it's any different anywhere else in the world. We face challenges and it's how we meet those challenges which determines whether we remain standing. As a business, we've had to adapt. And really the, the biggest challenge that any manufacturer faces in specification architectural lighting has got to be how do you manage the complexity? Projects are just never the same. We work with some amazing designers who have different ideas as to how things should be done. They don't want to just take the same solution and roll it out for the rest of their lives. So we pioneer. And being pioneers means we've got to be able to manage the complexity that comes with that. No two buildings are the same. That's very true. Maybe we have certain platforms. So you look at our website and you'll see our product families. And yes, they probably cope with 70% of the demand. Yes, a standard solution will work. But what about that difficult project where you can't afford to spill light into some residence garden or some condo block is going to be experiencing uncomfortable lights building? We've got to be able to control optically. We've got to be able to mechanically bring things together. And that's the complexity. We have a lot of components. The LED is just one component. The light engine is critical for the performance. And we certainly make sure that we're able to develop very efficient lighting solutions from the source. But that's only half the problem. The other half of the problem is, okay, we take an order for something that we were working on for many weeks, if not months, and then all of a sudden, after two years of working on a project, we need light fixtures on a building site in an incredibly short period of time. And whatever that period of time is, it's always going to be a challenge. Whether it's very complicated or simple, you still got to bring the whole logistics side of running a business together. How do you get your components? We have to be able to offer great value in terms of the price we charge for our product. And unfortunately, sometimes that means that we don't have to source all our material so locally. Yes, we source the majority from the United States, but there are always parts that go further afield. Maybe it's Europe, maybe it's the Far East. And the combination of design and sales, I understand this. If you ask the sales team, hey, what are you guys going to sell this week? They haven't got a clue, to be honest. It'll be like, well, we think this, we think that. Well, can you tell me exactly which size of product and which wattage and what output, which drivers you're going to need? And that's so you can plan ahead of time. Yeah, and I've spent 20 years trying to forecast. And I think the truth is, you know what you're not going to sell. 
So if within your product portfolio, there's no quotations, but if you start to quote $100 million, then sift through that and figure out which ones are going to become orders and which ones are not. That's a very difficult task. The only way to adapt is to then say, okay, well, maybe we can't forecast. We have to have a certain amount of parts held on the shelf to be able to build product. The rest has got to be how quickly can you react? Have you got suppliers that you can work with that may perform a special function on a part? Have you got a part that's coming from far away? How responsive is that network of supply chain around you? That's absolutely critical today because you probably can't do it all in-house. Some people do. We buy a lot of parts and regard ourselves as the integrators of those components. We have a good supply chain. We're able to integrate. We have the clever people that figure out that we can mount other devices into our lighting products. Exterior lighting today might not just be a light. It might be a loudspeaker. It might be a camera. It might be a Wi-Fi point. All these are devices from other specialist areas that we have to incorporate into our system in a very quick time. So just to understand that supply chain, let's take a journey from a finished product and walk through how many components have to come together. Salux is known both for linear lines of light and outdoor. I'll let you pick and we'll take a journey. Let's start on the interior side. We pride ourselves on being the first linear lighting manufacturer in North America, but of course there's a lot of competition. Today we have to make sure that our product is always innovating. The product of today looks very similar to something perhaps we sold a few years ago, but the technology has changed. In terms of the supply chain, the majority of that material, if you're talking interior lighting, incredibly short lead times are required. As a tenant signs a lease on a building in a city, they want to be occupying that space shortly afterwards. So a tenant fit out would be very quick, very short number of weeks where we'd have to have a good quantity of material on stock. We are an international group, so over the water in Germany, our office there has a lot of tooling for lenses. So we would stock a certain amount, but maybe a special lens is required that we might have to fly over. Sadly, we do fly material in. We like to think we'd put it on a boat and it would arrive here in time, but that's not always the case. So we would make sure we have a forward forecast of our LED boards, our drivers, and the electrical components that we would know are repetitively used. And then it's just a case of the special things. So we all have standard lenses, we'll have standard housings. But what if we've got to do something new? Well, it's how quickly can we react to modifying, as in drilling and forming. And that's a lot of the skill of the people. We have a lot of automation in terms of machines that produce a modified part. It's very much the skill of the people that allow us to do that, from design to craftspeople within the factory. Where are those electrical components coming from? The majority of the light source in terms of LED chips generally Far Eastern manufactured. So it may be that you can forecast your demand of the chip, but what LED platform are you going to put it on? So we all have an annual requirement for certain colored temperatures, certain outputs, and certain manufacturers that we'll work to, but then we have to arrange them on a PCB LED board. Those boards are generally populated in the United States. So we buy all the components and then we bring them together with somebody who will put that LED chip onto a board. That board then makes its way into our product. We do the electrical connections, the mechanical integration of the light engine with the electrical parts, the ceiling suspension system, and ultimately get it packed up and put in a box and sent out the door. You know, the packed up and putting it in the box is probably the most exciting part because that means you're going on to light up somebody's life. But there's one more challenge in all of this, the installation. When stuff shows up, it's out of your hands, yet the job's not done. How do you reassure that? Installation instructions. I'm not sure who reads those away. in day-to-day -day life, but if you've got a lighting system that's going around the perimeter, let's say it's an elevator lobby and the walls take many shapes and sizes and we've made a system to perfectly integrate into that space, then you can't afford to mix the parts up. You've got 90 degree corners and various angle parts that have got to go in. Everything has to be numbered. So through the manufacturing process, 
Each part of that system carries a number, and ultimately, when the person on site comes to install it, they've got to look at those numbers, look at the layout plan, and put them in the right place. And of course, time crunch on construction sites is everybody's biggest enemy because maybe we're making a lighting system for a building that really is just a shell. The interior walls have not gone up yet. We're building light fixtures to fix onto those walls. Contractor comes in, puts the walls a few inches to the left or the right. That can cause problems later on when somebody says, well, hang on, your lights are wrong. And we go, actually, I don't think so. I think the wall's in the wrong place. But quickly, we would figure out a You have solution. to be able to adapt into That's the right. built environment. The bottom line is people build buildings. And while we try to be accurate and perfect, you have to be ready to adapt in the field. When you talk about this process, it is certainly complicated. And I appreciate you enlightening me and everybody else that gets to listen to this. But I have to ask, the future is here. And moving forward, that process, I'm sure, will become more efficient. What are you doing at Salux to innovate that and manufacturing in general? Within manufacturing in general, I think we have to make sure that we operate very efficiently. Certainly as there's price compression in the market, then the factory has to be able to produce a certain volume per year at the lowest cost. So we've got to control our labor costs. We've got to control the time it takes to build the product. We have to build the product quite quickly. So from manufacturing, there's a lot that goes into the layout of a factory to get a good material flow through that factory. And that's something that we continue to work on at Salex. That job is never going to end. We've just got to always look at a design and think, okay, if we could just change the design, maybe we can make it faster. So like you said, even though that linear line of light that you guys have been manufacturing since practically the inception of the company, it looks the same, but what goes into it and how it's built is constantly evolving. How much of that do you use to share and update people versus it's just behind the scenes as a way to stay efficient? It might be that we do take a product and that we take a manufacturing look at that product and we say, okay, well, we don't want it to perform any differently and look any different as far as the end user and design is concerned. But how we build it needs to change to make it go through these processes a lot faster. If there's secondary operations where you have to take a piece of material and machine a piece of material off it or drill a hole or fold it, we look at those processes and say, okay, can we remove some of those processes? Can we put more detail into die-cast parts rather than individual fabricated parts? Can we try to make a light fixture go together with one screw rather than 10 screws? And if you have to put 10 screws in, make sure they all have the same head on the top of the screw so the operator doesn't have to pick up two different tools. That's the challenge from the manufacturing end. From the product innovation end, that's really the key to every business that you can't stand still. You can't just take the same product that you made for the last 10 years and just make it cheaper because that's ultimately going to reach a point where you can no longer make it any cheaper. So we aim to keep improving the technology in terms of the control of light. So we'd look at the light and say, today we have a system where the light is available in certain lighting distributions. I think there's a move within architecture right now to make lighting less visible. We just want to see the effect of the light. So how do we achieve that with a system that's long established in the market? Well, we need an optical configuration where when you look at the product, you don't know it's switched on, but it is illuminating all the surfaces around it. If we're washing a wall, we don't want to see the bright line of the light fixture next to the wall. We just want to see the illuminated wall. That's the challenge where we can take a product and keep improving the optic and the control of light and the efficiency of light. And then we get into game changes. Where are we going in the next few years? That's always the question. Now, of course, I don't want to give too much away, but I think interior lighting, we're wanting to make lighting disappear within the space. The effect of what we manufacture is what needs to illuminate the space and be visible. So I think interior lighting is going to become smaller and more hidden within the architectural environment. Which is incredible, considering that we're basically at an inch aperture already. 
Yeah, but there may be a way to conceal it within the architecture. I think we can integrate lighting into the forms within the building so it's not just a building with individual lighting. I think exterior lighting, we're seeing dramatic changes where we are integrating security lighting. We would take what was normally a pole with a head on it and over in the corner of the square there would be another mast with a camera on it and then a Wi-Fi pole would go up. We want to bring all that equipment together into the pole. When you look at that pole outside, I'm going to ask an obvious question. Why is it becoming the backbone for all of it? Why does lighting become that standard? That's a good question. I think lighting has been long established within the electrical layout. Therefore, the points are defined. Lighting has to be spaced at a certain interval. Wi-Fi has to be spaced at a certain interval. You've got to have to have the lighting pole and everything else then follows suit. Peter, this has been a really fun conversation. How can people get in touch with you if they have any questions? Absolutely. We're certainly available through the website. Our contact details are there. It always starts with people checking out the website, saying, okay, a little bit more about Salux. Find our website, have a look at that, see if there's products that interest you. And then we have a whole network of sales agents. We work through sales agents in every region. Off the website, you'll be able to find who the agent is that's close by. We have our regional management team who are there to support the agents as well. So we have plenty of contact information on the website. And if not, just drop me a line. Drop Peter a line. Their website, by the way, is salux.us. That's S-E-L-U-X dot U-S. Because we are in North America, this side of the pond, as we like to say in Highland, New York, when we talk about our friends over in Berlin. Peter, thanks again so much. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Sam. Absolute pleasure. See you. Hey, it's Sam. Real quick, if you enjoyed this podcast, do me a favor and go back to the app that you listen to this in and click that like, follow, or subscribe button. That's the best way to never miss another episode of The Light Pod, where we interview people that are all things lighting, that are innovators, founders, and passionate designers. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.